At this time, our children are now dismissed for their time of worship. And as they go to continue worshiping, let us pray together. God, we have asked today that you meet us here. We have shown up trusting that in this mix of community and worship and song and word and people and space, that somehow we might catch a glimpse of your dream for our world. We need it in our week and in our lives. And so may you meet us here. May you soften our hearts and tune our ears and our eyes to see you in new ways and be transformed today. In the name of the one who was life and love made flesh, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I'm one of those people who has some pretty awesome friends. Does anybody agree with me? Do you have some pretty awesome friends? Uh, My friends aren't just awesome because they're great friends to me. They're loyal and they're great listeners and they're supportive, but they're just pretty fabulous in and of themselves, and frankly, they make me look pretty good. So um, one of my roommates from college named Jessica graduated and immediately secured a job as the invitations coordinator of the social office of the White House. Her, uh, yes, and since then she's, you know, worked her way up and is running the world pretty much. But at that point, her ultimate boss was First Lady Laura Bush, and her job responsibilities included creating and managing every invitation for every guest for every social function at the White House. So, you can just imagine the stories that she would tell. She would talk with, regularly, she would talk with foreign princes or coordinate details with Secret Service. She would oversee and manage the White House's 50,000-person strong guest list of people who at any given time might show up at the White House. So, as you can imagine, like I said, her stories were pretty incredible, and I promised her that if I talked about her today, I wouldn't incriminate her by telling some of her sauciest stories. So, you'll have to ask me later about those, but she would tell of the last-minute panic when things went wrong with a foreign dignitary's meal, or if invitations went out um, where the country to which they were arriving, the flag of that country was printed upside down instead of right side up, and titles incorrect and whatnot. Jessica's primary responsibility was to maintain decorum, to ensure proper etiquette, and to very properly represent the White House to all their invited guests. It was quite the task. And so she called herself loosely the manager of manners, if you will. And I wonder today if the parable in which we just heard was to be applied in Jessica's job. What if... Instead of those standards that she so correctly maintained, what if the new set of standards that she was told and that she enforced, by which the social office of the White House followed, were that instead of lauding each guest as he or she arrived and carefully placing them at the table with other very important people, what if the White House instead instructed the guests to trade places with the servers and the table bussers and the cooks and the butlers? 
What if instead of inviting dignitaries and royals and prime ministers and presidents and politicians to state house dinners and inaugural meals, what if instead Jessica sent her invitations to women who live under the underpasses or men who are in and out of halfway houses, to college students who exist on ramen noodles and coffee or families who can't afford to make rent, to children who have behavioral struggles or teenagers who go to juvenile detention? What might our sense of power and worth and honor and prestige look like? How would that affect the actual lives that we lead? Our gospel lesson this morning comes to us from the Gospel of Luke, where we see Jesus, as we do so often in this gospel, gathered around a table. We see Jesus heading to the house of one of the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of his time on the Sabbath. The Pharisees were watching him closely, Luke tells us, observing how the rule makers ensure that Jesus followed the rules on this one particular day where the restrictions were the clearest about what to do and what not to do. And of course, Jesus didn't follow the rules. He healed a man with dropsy on the way to this dinner we read about and received a very cold silence from the Pharisees when asked if rules trumped people. But in this case, Jesus wasn't done yet. He watched how the Pharisees jockeyed for the seat closest to him at dinner and directly called them out by telling them a parable about proper seating at a meal. You see, Jesus' table etiquette in the day of his time in first century Palestine was nearly as bad as what you and I experienced in middle school or high school. For some of you back there, what you experience every day, where you see, you know, the the jock table over here and the band geek table over here. And if you're like me, you're the too earnest doing musical theater and student government table over here. And where you sat in that lunchroom revealed your status, your social standing, your own power. And being in such close proximity to others who had a higher social class than you elevated your own position. Scholars call this an honor-shame culture, reminding us that this culture in which Jesus lived and taught and moved was deeply hierarchical. The emphasis in that social structure was not one based on equality, where all people share the same access to um, anything in life or the, the power structures that be, but rather on reciprocity. Are you acting rightly given your social class and social standing by giving the appropriate honor to people who were above you and avoiding shame at all costs? Basically, the if I do something for you, you better do something for me and it better be pretty good. So you can imagine that the instructions that Jesus offered in this parable were met with about the same amount of disbelief as if Jessica had to employ them at the White House. Jesus upends social conventions by telling those Pharisees to seek the lowest seat, not the highest one, and to let others elevate you to where they think you should be. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. The table manners of this honor-shame world 
are cast aside by Jesus and replaced by the table manners of the kingdom of God. In the way of Jesus that he described, honor becomes a gift granted, not a right earned by anyone. And in doing so, Jesus lessens this need for reciprocity and instead makes equality that which is certain. Jesus doesn't just reverse the expectations of seating at the meal, but he upends the actual invitation to the meal itself. He tells the Pharisees that instead of inviting to that great banquet the usual suspects, the well-to-do, the people who know how to handle themselves at a dinner party, instead look to the margins. Invite the outcasts, the poor, the blind, the lame, the crippled. Why? Because they are God's community. We all are God's community. And frankly, without any of us, God's dream for this world, God's picture, God's beautiful feast of love is incomplete. If only this was the way the world worked. Because, you know, when people start messing with social order and allowing more room at the table for some unlikely diners, the power systems of our world react And if we think that this is only the case in Jesus' time, well, well, frankly, we're kidding ourselves because it happens all the time. It happened just last Saturday where you see a, a group of folks gathered at Moore Square in downtown Raleigh, North Carolina. In this group of folks, some came from churches and others didn't, and they gathered on a sidewalk right outside the park to hand out hot coffee and sausage biscuits to anyone who was hungry that morning just as they have done week in and week out every Saturday and Sunday for the last six years. This group is a ministry called Love Wins. And you see, for the folks in Raleigh who are homeless, there's no official place to go over a weekend where you can receive a meal if you're hungry. And this group of people wanted to remedy just that. And so they would gather and they would hand out this food and they would share a meal together. But yet this Saturday was somehow different. For you see, when they arrived, just by the square, you have the volunteers here and you have the folks who are coming to eat the meal here, and they were met by three policemen. And those three police officers told the group of volunteers that if they attempted to distribute food, they would be arrested. When questioned about why, after six years of feeding Raleigh's homeless community, week in and week out, publicly, peacefully, and with all the proper permissions checked off, why now, why today would this be a problem? The policemen had no answers. They just repeated their orders and said, I'm just telling you what it is. If you hand out this food, you're going to jail. So they digged a little deeper. And over the course of the week, they realized that the powerful interest groups and businesses who had recently decided to redevelop Moore Square in that park with apartment complexes and wonderful splash parks for kids and new sets of bathrooms and restaurants that they didn't have in their picture of that park this particular community. This sounds like a delightful addition to a downtown park, right? But at the core of this mishap was a feast. 
And it was a feast of gentrification and development and great new possibilities for the haves. But a crowd of homeless folks with coffee and biscuits, the have-nots, were just not invited. When you change the rules for who's included at the table, it upsets the power structure. But let me tell you, we can sit here today and think, oh man, that's awful, I would never do such a thing, but you and I are not off the hook. We are just as culpable to the ways that the power structures move in our world as those developers were in Raleigh. We share that same obsession with self-promotion, with getting to the front of the line, with improving countless aspects of our lives, not just for the betterment of ourselves, but because hopefully people will notice and compliment us and be impressed. Catholic theologian Patrick Clark calls this our honor addiction and says with such searing truth that the real tragedy of the human obsession over honor is that ultimately it alienates us from one another and so takes us ever farther from the interpersonal communion in which our fulfillment rests. The more we try to boost our own selves, strategizing about ways that we can move up and get ahead in this world, the more we fall victim of those who distance ourselves from our community and the lonelier we become. But wait, you might be thinking to yourself, well, how, how do we avoid this? This is what we're supposed to do. How are we supposed to make it in this world? Cheryl Sandberg tells us we're supposed to lean in, and the Kardashians tell us we're supposed to keep up. I mean, what, how are we supposed to do this? We're only following the narrative our culture has told us time and time again. We spend our lives working our way up to have a place at the table. Through our wealth, our ideas, our titles, our education, our memberships, our degrees, our looks, our popularity only to find that once we've arrived at that table, we notice there's an even better table right over there or an even better person to sit next to right over here. And so what do we do? We get scared. We get scared. We get scared of losing our spot at the table as others scramble to get there and we cling to our seat with dear life. We decide who's in and out at our table who's worthy and accepted and who's not. We legislated in our government through wages and programs and unequal rights and fences around the country. We practice it in our own groups of friends and our own social classes. And we do so even in our churches, speaking up with discomfort when the table suddenly feels too crowded. This isn't the only way, though, that fear orients our place at the table of love. Have you ever been invited to go and do something or, or go somewhere and you turned it down? I'm, I have, and I'm sure you have as well. It could be like our parable. It was just an invitation to a party, or, or it could be something a little more lasting than that. An invitation into a relationship or a request for you to volunteer or to lead something, an offer of a new job or a new place to live, the possibility of growing your family, or an invitation to once and for all to get clean, to get healthy, to get your life together. 
And if you said no, maybe you really did have a good excuse, something you needed to accomplish at work or the demands of your family or a conflict you just couldn't avoid. Or maybe you're like me and like all of us who at some point have turned down an invitation because of fear, being afraid that you will be inadequate or unprepared or no good, Scared that you might not have the right job or the right education or finances or knowledge to respond. Terrified that a life change of this magnitude might make you look and feel different and unfamiliar to those around you and even to yourself. One of my dear, dear friends has struggled with addiction for many years. And after he recently hit a new low this summer, he confided in me that he thought he could get sober. But he was terrified of doing so. Because, frankly, he didn't know what he looked like as a sober person. He had forgotten. Years and years of living under the haze of alcohol, numbing himself to pain and suffering, and acting like the life of the party at every party he went to, which, frankly, was all the time, He didn't think he could function in the world without it. He didn't think his friends would recognize him. And the thing that scared him the most was that he didn't think he'd recognize himself. And so with that in mind, with these words of Jesus ringing in our ears, I want to propose today that we learn some new table manners Table manners that show us that we are loved and invited and celebrated and welcomed to the feast simply because we are beloved children of God, not because we've earned it. We need to learn table manners that open our eyes to those around us who are not at our table and stir within us a desire to reshuffle our own seat to make room for others. We need to learn new table manners that allow us to accept an invitation to the feast, even when it scares us. We need to learn new table manners that help us to delight in doing the same loving and inviting and celebrating and welcoming for others as we have received ourselves. So how do we do that? In order to really know these deep at the core of our beings, we must practice it together. And so we do that here on mornings just like this one. We gather, we sing the songs of faith, and we tell ourselves the stories of Jesus. We pray, we break bread together, we share in the feast of abundance and retrain our muscles and our habits so that someday we might drown out the song of scarcity that we hear day in and day out with the rich harmonies of abundance. And because when we practice gospel table manners, our entire sense of etiquette turns around, no longer will we suffer from that honor addiction and be inclined to better our own position, but to give freely to others because we want to better everyone else's lives. When we practice gospel table manners, we give because others can't repay us, not because we expect repayment in return. When we practice gospel table manners, we say yes when invited to the gospel feast, not making excuses because we have more important things to do or because we're too afraid of what we may taste or see there. 
when we practice gospel table manners. We take delight when our table becomes crammed and we get displaced, not feeling the need to stake our claim. Yeah, it's scary and uncomfortable. But just think, what might happen if we actually did that? If we really knew ourselves as beloved children of God, treasured and celebrated, and let this celebration of a grace infect and invite the world around us. If we did just that, we have only to reflect what happened 50 years ago this week in our country to know the impact that this type of invitation may have. If we dare to dream with Dr. King of a world in which all people are created equal, a world where justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, if we dare to dream of a world where the exalted will be humbled and the humbled exalted, where we all accept joyfully God's invitation to the great banquet of love, then in the words of Dr. King, we will speed up the day in which all of God's children join hands at the heavenly feast. And so today, may we go and do likewise. Go knowing that you are beloved of God, covered with grace and invited to the feast. Find people along around you to invite with you. There's always someone. Go out into the highways and the byways if you need. Invite them to join. Remind them that they too are loved and forgiven. Tell them your story. Best if it's over a meal. Describe for them the feast of love. Prepare them for the colorful crowd they'll meet at the banquet. Awaken their senses to the sights and the sounds and the smells and the tastes of God. Seat them next to you with excitement for the ways their lives will be filled and risk your own spot at the table your invitation to the feast of the way of love. God calls us today to this banquet of love. And the question you and I must answer is, will we join the feast? Our community of followers here is imperfect, but we like to feast together, and we invite you to come and feast with us. If you're feeling the call of Christ in your life today, I invite you to come forward as I stand here at the front. We'll sing our closing hymn, and so may you come.